poured a lot of whiskey over a lot of ice. And as it drowned out the sound of reality, it blacked out the worst and the best in me. I regained consciousness on a jailhouse floor, and I couldn't wait to to the floor and then it took me to the gutter then things went wrong faster than I could lower my standards and even I had to admit that my life was a disaster the bottom is when the digging for a new episode of Escape from Society podcast. And this, if you've even glanced at the length of this episode, you can tell that the format might be a little bit different. This episode's going to be over an hour long, and most of it is conversation between me and Cynthia Hopkins, who is a multidisciplinary theater artist, musician, uh, who I've been working with uh, on occasion for a few years now and I was recently this, just this past February in her latest show called This Clement World I was playing trombone and right now you're listening to a song that was written for that show this is not a recording from the show but a recording from a sort of preview concert uh, given you know months earlier Anyways, what the show was, was Cindy playing a few different characters. She was the only actor in the show, but she played a, uh, she played herself. She played a space alien from the uh, current time period, a girl from the future, a girl from the past, a German physicist. She sort of embodied these different people, all taking a look at 
climate change, which was the subject of the show. Much of the show was based on a cool experience Cindy had sailing to the Arctic on a hundred-year-old sailing ship, sailboat maybe you would call it, sailing ship, called the Norderlicht, with uh, about two dozen other artists and scientists all together on the boat. I had fun being a part of the show, as I have enjoyed being a part of Cindy's other shows, and I thought I'd talk to her about her work, this show in particular, but also just be in conversation. So this episode is going to be partly sort of an extended program notes type of Cindy talking about the work, but it's also going to go into some more hypothetical and other realms of discussion. Frankly, it'll ramble a little bit towards the end, but I think in kind of an interesting way. I'll play a few more of her songs, and uh, I hope you enjoy. We started the interview pretty casually. Uh, We sort of slipped into the conversation, but I asked her uh, if there was anything she wanted to talk about that I wasn't likely to ask her about, and she said, well, I'm working on this new thing. I'd like to talk about that. So uh, we started the conversation by discussing her newest uh, piece that's in development. You did a show this weekend, right? Yeah, just the other night. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't my show, but it was a, it was a kind of cabaret style night in which I did three short segments of this new work. So, um, and it was really nice because, I mean, that's basically the way that I make work is by scheduling performances that, and then I have to come up with something to do by the time of the performance. And it was nice to have the format of the three short segments because this new piece is, I think it's becoming like a series of character monologues, all addressing the subject of, um, the trials and tribulations of trying to earn a living as a performing artist. So I did three character sketches, basically, a couple nights ago. I thought it was going to be interviews, actually, Um, kind of like what we're doing right now. I thought I was going to interview. I mean, I am still interviewing people, interviewing colleagues about how they managed to earn a living in the performing arts. and so I did that publicly the first couple times I did showings of this thing. I included interviews. But what I found is that, well, in the context that I did them, there was it was too short of a time. And I think that's what nice, what's nice about podcasts and these longer forms is that people can really get into conversation. And also, at first I thought it would be nice to have a live audience there, but an audi- the presence of an audience really changes the tone of a conversation because there's a pressure to entertain or there's a pressure to for for me there's a pressure for it to be sort of quicker paced and more potentially exciting but now these these monologues have started to come up that are more like um I mean they're comic they're just comic mm-hmm. characters so they're actually it's it's really like a tra- the Tracy Ullman show or the Carol Burnett show or something like but that. But are you distilling <laughs> the conversations that you have? 
I'm taking, I'm, I am taking material, drawing material from those conversations. And then, um, yeah. And I, that's what I thought initially. Like, do you know Anna Devere Smith's work at no. all? I mean, she's well known now because she's, she's on the show Nurse Jackie. She's the, she's Nurse Jackie's boss on mm -hmm. the TV show. But she m makes performances out of interviews. So she, she interviews people about a particular subject or incident. Like she did one about the Crown Heights riots. She interviewed a bunch of different people who were involved in that event, incident. And then she made a performance of monologues of the character she had interviewed. So this is many times removed from that. But. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I've like been it. saying, I've been describing it as a cross between an Anna DeVere Smith show and Carol Burnett or Tracy Ullman show. So I guess you could, you could call it that. Yeah. Um, you were interviewing people on the Norderlicht. Yeah. And is, is that the first time you had interviewed anybody? You know, I think it probably was actually. Is that And really you said true? you were bad at it. Or not I, that you were necessarily bad, bad at, at it, at but it. <laughs> that you were like terrified of doing it. Yeah. Uh, I think of myself as bad at it. And who knows? I guess I'm not a good judge. But it's it's it is scary for me to it was scary for me to do that because in ge I'm generally a shy person and so I mean it's it's not so it used to I used to be really painfully shy uh, and would look you know look down at the ground a lot and and not look at people in the eye and really have trouble talking to people. I can mask it a lot better now, but I have what I what I have more now is like social anxiety. Um, like there's a lot of sort of emotion that, you know, starts to spring up when I go to talk to people who, who I don't know very well. And so on this, on the Norderlicht, it was all, everyone except one person I had never met before that boat trip. Mm -hmm. So it was, they were pretty much strangers. And they're all strangers. like specialists in a field that you didn't necessarily know anything about. Yeah, so I was a little bit intimidated for for that specific reason. Like some of them were scientists, oceanographers. You know, one of them was the captain of the ship, and he was the most intimidating of them all. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So it was scary. Is it easier talking to artists because they're artists? I think there's probably yeah, a level, uh, a little bit more ease there. Um, because I, I'm, I'm an artist, and so I feel like there's a connection there, and so that the intimidation of feeling like I don't necessarily know the what question to ask or something like that, you know, in relation to to people who are on the order, like it's not like that with artists. But it's. I mean, talking about making a living as an artist is different than talking about the art that you're making. It's yeah. a much more sensitive subject for people. It is. I mean, that's part of what's kind of fascinating about it, actually, to have conversations. And I think what's going to be tricky, like I was talking to somebody recently and saying I would like to, and she's an old friend who uh, works in the performing arts, and... She said, I don't think I'd be comfortable uh, doing an interview about this subject matter in public or for other people to hear because she said she has a degree of shame about 
her notions about earning a living. Um, like one of the things she was saying was that she makes her own work and then she does work for other people for money, which you do and which I do. Like I have my own work that I consider mine and that is under my name. And then I sometimes work as a performer and sometimes as a composer for other people's projects. Right. And she's in a similar position. And, and she said that for her, she feels like when she's wor- she's doing her thing for other people, she feels it has more validity or she feels like it's, um, it's worth, it's worthwhile endeavor. Whereas when she's doing her own work, which she has to raise money for and kind of be the generative force behind it, she feels, I don't know, like it's, there's some sort of embarrassment there. I mean, I actually feel the opposite way. Yeah, I feel the opposite (laughs) way. That's really, that's weird. Yeah, I thought it was weird too. And I was, so I was really interested to, to talk to her. And, and maybe that's why she's, she has like shame about that point of view, but that that's is some sort of, is. yeah, some sort of deep seated thing. But I think there's a lot, I think there's generally um, a kind of shame and embarrassment about talking about um, money and earning a living and survival. Have you detected embarrassment or shame in artists for? being artists for not uh you know participating in the sort of everyday make the world go round type of economy that is we're told is the important thing i mean right. you ask you ask me i say like uh, no i'm not embarrassed like we're right we're fighting the good fight uh but yeah would you want to live you, in a world without the arts, right? No, but have you encountered anybody would. who's who feels embarrassed that like they're getting away with something by having this like <laughs> great life where all the other suckers are going to work or something? Not, um, no, not, uh, not that anyone has expressed in in that way. But I, I think my d- deduction is that my friends shame that that's what that's about. In other words, she feels like when she's working for a paycheck, it's valid because somehow it's somehow it's more connected to the working world. You know, she's she's working for a living. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when she's making her own work, it's there's a little bit of shame because it's 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 this there's a there's a degree of frivolity or something to it because she's she's making it happen, you know, she's and I mean I have that in myself like a little bit of kind of deep-seated feeling like what I'm doing is yeah getting away with getting away with something or um and I mean I really I had it in a very extreme and um, pronounced way when I was in high school and then going into college In fact, I made a decision going into college that I was going to give up the arts and I was going to pursue something um, in in the not only just working world, but I was I I thought, oh, I need to dedicate my life to social justice. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that was partly because my mother had died while I was in high school. So I had this feeling of what I now understand was survivor's guilt essentially, but feeling like I don't deserve to be, you know, 
sitting around yeah. <laughs> playing the piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't deserve to be sitting around at all. And so I felt like sort of to justify my existence somehow, I had to like help people. So there it was all this, you know, psychological booyah behind it. But I kind of started out studying in college with the intent to go into maybe social work or something like that. Um, but my first semester of college, there was an audition notice for Mad Forest by Ka Carol Churchill, which is about the Romanian Revolution and the overthrow of Ceausescu. And, and you know, that's a relevant social issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I auditioned for that and got cast in that. And then when that show was over, there was an audition notice for St. Joan um, by George Bernard Shaw, and that's a relevant social issue. So basically, it... it the arts, what I what I came to understand and believe really strongly now is that the the arts and the and um, realm of social justice or relevant social change or you know politics actually even you know that they're not separate things that they're deeply interconnected. And Do you feel that's more true for certain artistic disciplines than others? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, I guess. Well, I don't know. I, I was gonna start to say. I was going to say. That the theater actually does have a tendency to address social issues because it's a and film, you know, because it's they're narrative based and so they can sort of tell the stories. They can tell sometimes actual stories that have happened in in real life um but on the other hand if you think of the role that music has played you know in social justice movements there's you know every movement needs an anthem or yeah. something for people to rally behind so i don't know that it would be fair to say that that one in the arts the the different disciplines go to different parts of the brain I mean, w when you're looking at visual art, static visual art, a painting or a photograph that goes w somewhere. If you're listening to music, that goes somewhere. Poetry goes somewhere. A book, a film, a, a theater piece. They go different places. And you know, it's probably different for everybody, the way their brain is calibrated. They're, wherever their sense of social justice is located, you know, <laughs> what, <laughs> what artistic input is it next to, you know, for some, for somebody, they might be really open to music that mm -hmm. presents ideas of social change, social justice. For some people, it, music might not be the thing. Um, what I thought was interesting about this Clement world was that you didn't explicitly uh, discuss policy. You didn't uh, do that at all. It was just <laughs> totally left to the side. And I thought it, it was kind of an elephant in the room mm -hmm. for the show. If you're going to be discussing something that uh, is so frequently cast as like a political issue, um, not to make policy suggestions and you even avoided making uh you know prescriptions for 
people in their everyday lives. You know, there's 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 no like ride a bicycle, uh, don't get a plastic bag at the supermarket kind of right. <laughs> uh, message in the show. So was was that? I mean, was that or avoiding politics altogether? I mean, how did that come to be the the way the show is? Well, I'd like to say it was a calculated decision, but it really was more that the process of making, you know, these weird shows that I make is is a somewhat it's a, it's an organic process, and it's also. Um, in line with that process is the sense that uh, the shows are kind of this organism and so they take on kind of a life of their own and at, at some point along the way, maybe even the whole time, I feel like I'm a servant to the organism. <laughs> so I'm sort of being led or my decisions are being dictated by it in a way. Um, and also, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, this comment world was an interesting show for me to make because it was the first time I'd addressed, it wasn't the first time I'd addressed subject matter that that affects other people or that other people have experience with, but it was the first time that I've addressed subject matter that affects every other human being on the planet um, without discrimination, actually. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it, it affects everybody, whether any, any particular person is happy about that or not. You know what I mean? It's not a choice. Um, and... Because of that, it has it is an issue that has entered the political arena. But I'm always a little bit mystified when I hear people say it's a political issue. I think it's... I guess I feel like what's, what's frustrating or tragic about it is that it's become politicized because it's, it's, it's mixed up with economics. Um, and that's what's hugely problematic about, uh, that's what is a wrench in the works of making the changes that, um, really need to be made towards sustainability, if that's what we want, you know? <laughs> yeah. I so I guess that. Like I, I, you know, some of the some of the stuff that I read about the issue, um, in particular Al Gore's stuff, because he is a politician, um, he's very much aware that the, that there's this time scale in politics, which is um, dictated by economic time scale, which is like quarterly. You know, it's kind of like the way that business thing, think business the business world thinks. Um, and the political world also because of elections. It's like sort of these time scales that are really tiny. Whereas, um, you know, the way that climate is being affected is this much larger time scale and it's actually beyond any human lifetime. And so 
he he argues that there's some sort of shift in thinking um, is part of what would make real change possible. And so I guess I was thinking, well, that's something that's something that you can express in the theatrical realm, mm. you know, is a kind of shift in perspective or that can be encouraged. Um, and it can be encouraged by having a character who is a ghost from 200 years ago and having a character from 200 years in the future who's visiting the present and having a character who's from another planet who's not from the Earth. And so you can have these, these fictional characters that represent and can hopefully what they can do is trigger the imagination of the audience to expand outward, you know, um, in space and time, horizontally and vertically, and <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and and I and I feel like that's the power that that an artistic form, in particular the theatrical form, has to communicate. So in other words, I guess particularities of policy um, at least in the kind of work that I make it isn't the, it isn't the ideal form of communication for that stuff you know um, I wonder what it would be like if if Michael Pollan was a was a theater artist or something because I mean he's someone I'm thinking about <laughs> yeah. who, who's very good at taking a, a broad problem mm -hmm. just nationwide and and so when I say political issue I mean really it's the uh, it's the people with their hands on the levers of commerce and society yeah. that that need to be the drivers of change because they're they're driving the bus <laughs> I mean they got to they got to steer or they got to whatever. So when Michael Pollan is is outlining a, a problem, he's good at also giving you a specific, okay, on the individual level, here's an example of how this problem is affecting your life right mm -hmm. now. And here's a way for you to help fix the problem, sidestep the, you know, sidestep the problem and uh that kind of prescription i know a lot of people find very comforting it's the mm. the sort of you open their their minds you open their perceptions and then they're ready to be told what to do mm. that's like the dan that's the danger of revolutions when people get right. their minds all open and you got some bozo telling them what to do and he's telling them the wrong thing right um right. But are there things that you've uh, changed in your life? I mean, thing you know, are there ways that you've adapted yourself now, armed with the knowledge that you you gained going through this process and having had this work speak to you and lead you around for a couple of years? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are there are there things that you've changed on a day to day? basis that you find are like man if everybody just did it this way we'd really be getting somewhere yeah uh i mean in terms of the piece itself i 
you know, there's this awareness now of a carbon footprint. And so when I was making the show, you know, the, the, sh the shows that I made um, before this show, the, especially the three shows in the trilogy, they have these gigantic architectures involved. And so they require, you know, a 40-foot container to travel. Mm -hmm. And so you have to truck those things across the country if you're going to perform across the country. And so with this show, I had this awareness of not wanting to... I, I wanted to be light, lightweight, and to be able to, and also to be able to travel. Um, to to be shown in spaces outside of these kind of rarefied institutions where my work has generally been shown, and so I I was insistent on designing it in that way and making it really portable, um, and I like to be able to take it to high schools and, you know, perform it in a high school auditorium. Um, so I had that in mind, and that was a big shift. In terms of my everyday life, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. It's like I, it, it's kind of subtle things, but I find myself be, uh, cooking more. <laughs> Uh -huh. at home um and also being aware of like where products are coming from and how far they've traveled to get to me um and i also ride my bike everywhere but i kind of did that before yeah. it wasn't really based on the awareness of this of this issue um i don't know i think it's more like I think the bigger shift in my in my in my life is like having some awareness of like in the making of that work and even the thing I'm working on now sort of connecting with other people more or um not being so wrapped up in my tiny little psychodrama <laughs> which I talk about in in the show. Well, selfishness is part of the environmental crisis yeah so yeah be more connected be more empathetic be you know yeah right um is the i mean people always reference native americans as a, a more community you know uh, communal in touch in harmony with the land mm -hmm. environment um type of culture and is that why is, is that sort of what led you to using the Native American character in the show? Is it's like that? Well, that was partly just point. accidental because I was reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee when I was, before I even went to the Arctic, when I was first starting to just do a bunch of research. And, but because I was also at the same time researching climate change, it just struck me. Um, Yes, it was a communal culture, but it was also a culture that was, you know, the spirituality of that culture was very much about reverence toward the natural world and a recognition of the kind of dire importance of the natural world, um, which is so startlingly absent from the culture that I live in today. And 
But what also struck me was that, I mean, I've been criticized a number of, by a number of people um, for, quote unquote, making it seem as if the Native American um, population is extinct. That's not what I meant to imply mm -hmm. at all. And so I, I see that as a misunderstanding of what I, I'm trying to get across. But what I was trying to get across is that it was a prevalent way of life in this country that was was um, plowed over. So it was a primary way of life and and that a way of life or at least a primary way of life has a mortality to it. Um, and what I hoped that that would then imply is that the way of life we have now is also malleable and not permanent and uh, not immortal and not you know, necessarily the best way to live. Um, so it was more representational of a, of a perhaps more um, sustainable and harmonious way of life that was prevalent and is no longer prevalent. Yeah. Okay, let's take a little music time out here and listen to another one of Cindy's songs. This is from her previous show, which was called The Truth, A Tragedy, and was about her father. It was a another sort of one-woman show of Cindy's. And this song I'm going to play is called Onions, and we're going to be discussing it in the next segment of the interview. What is a word, 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 word. 
So I've been curious um, about why you uh, took this Arctic voyage in the first place and uh, what sort of flipped the switch in you to make make some work about climate change. And in the show you presented prior to this climate world, uh, The Truth, you sing a song that your dad wrote, Onions. Oh, Onions. Right? It was based on a song. Based wrote, on a yeah. song that your dad wrote. Yeah, I never totally believed that your dad wrote that song, so I'm glad <laughs> you cleared that up. He a wrote bit. a musical comedy called Onions. And this was exclamation a, point. Right. And, and this the, song was directly based on a song from that musical. Like so, the, the riff of the song. And yeah, anyway. So it has, the song has the line in it, something about. Uh, you know, can I save the world from global warming? Oh, yes. And I just like, it's... it's I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just seemed like such a... <laughs> such a setup, <laughs> you know? It's like the, the... You know, down the rabbit hole, if you just want to go into a micro level of something from uh, a past show and be like... This there's something in me. Can I save the world from global warming? I mean, right. is that That's the seed. did you write there. that line or did your dad write that line? Oh, I wrote that line. Yeah. Um, and so some of the lines in the song are from you know the lyrics in his musical and and but uh, most of them aren't. And so yeah, that wasn't. But um, <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, I I was obviously prior to working on this climate world, I was already disturbed about global warming. It's not like it was this sudden discovery when I went to the Arctic. And so, yeah, it was already in my consciousness. Um, And come to think of it, the original impetus to make a piece about climate change was a conference I was invited to attend. Um, 
at Columbia's Earth Institute by an organization called Tipping Point, which is another British organization. It was a British organization called Cape Farewell that brought me to the Arctic. But before the Arctic trip, while I was still writing the show about my dad, I went to that Tipping Point conference. And now I'm wondering if that's how that made its way into that song, that line. I honestly don't remember. But but it was that conference that made me want to make a show about this issue. Two speeches, well, really the opening speech of the conference, which I then reference at the end of This Clement World, was a speech by Wallace Broker. And he's this older dude, he's maybe 79 years old, and he's been studying climate science his whole life, and um, discovered the oceanic conveyor belt, and coined the term global warming, and he gave the opening speech of the conference, and what was striking about it was that he said, well, first of all, he's an old guy, so he's not going to live very much longer, and the first thing he said was, I would like to live a little, little bit longer, because I'm really curious to see what's going to happen next with this issue, because we're at a turning point in human history, and decisions that we make right now are going to have extremely dramatic impacts on the future of the human race and the future of this planet. And so it was this beautiful marriage of a personal perspective with a scientific understanding and a kind of wider, more long-term perspective, all wrapped up in this one guy. And so, and then we were given an assignment. We were paired, paired off in groups, and each group included at least one climate scientist and at least one artist. And um, we were assigned to make, to, to write a very succinct message, some sort of expression. And it was an extremely tiny word limit, which is why that, the end song of This Comet World is so short, because that's what I wrote was the song. And so it was this beautiful, um, you know, freedom and restriction moment where... <laughs> Uh, and we had to do it right away. We had to do it that mm. night. We had to present it the next day, um, which I also find to be really useful. You know, when you have to write something and you have to write it within these very strict limits. Um, and so what I wrote was a song for him to sing, for Wallace Broker to sing. Um, and he also talked about CO2 sequestration, which I thought was really interesting. And that's where the phrase about lassoing the co2 comes from like i imagine and he kind of looks like a cowboy he's got Uh. a wearing a plaid shirt and jeans so like lassoing the co2 like cowboys in the old wild west was all came out of this speech by this one guy and then the very next day another speech was given by a guy named jeffrey Sachs, who writes about sustainability and he talked about communication about climate change and how there's been so much miscommunication about about climate change for economic reason, economically driven yeah. <laughs> purposes, yeah. right? Um, you know, the protection of an oil, gas, and coal-driven economy. So one of the artists in the audience said to him, what can an artist possibly do to contribute to changes that need to happen? And, and he said, well, the arts can communicate in a way that's maybe more visceral and emotionally powerful and accessible um, even just in terms of people who might hear the message and then the the nature of the messages themselves 
um, than the scientific community or the journalistic community can. And so then I really wanted to make something because yeah. I thought, oh, my God, I can use my weird skill set to maybe communicate about this issue. E and even just even if it's just to enter into the consciousness of the audience for an hour longer than they might otherwise have thought about the issue that day, you know, because I mean, I believe what you said earlier is true that there are the people with the levers, you know, who are the politicians. And I do believe that this is an issue that ultimately, um, you know, national and international policy is going to be required. Right. Well, the really corporations, yeah, I mean, and the, the corporations, which unfortunately the world, yeah. drive <laughs> rule yeah. the world right now. But I also believe that grassroots, grassroots movements can have, can, can impel massive change. I mean, that's happened throughout history. I mean, look at the civil rights movement, right? That if, if enough momentum builds, um, you know, there the it eventually does start to change policy, and um, and also, you know, I mean, I yeah, it's it's it can be discouraging to think about you know those um, those gigantic corporations. Um, there's a book I read when I was working on the piece called Blessed Unrest, and and it talks about this kind of worldwide grassroots movement that exists and that's growing and growing and growing, and, and you can see it everywhere you look now. You know, um, there's increasing, and it's like exponentially increasing consciousness um, about what's happening and changes people can make and. And he talks about how that's, you know, there's this Gaia theory that um, James Lovelock introduced that has, I mean, it's an older idea than that, I guess, but that the, that the biosphere is like an organism because uh, everything in it, including us, we're just, we're, it's all interconnected. And so in Blessed Unrest, it talks about from that point of view, this grassroots movement is like the immune system of this organism. Yeah you know, recognizing that it's being threatened and kind of rising up to protect um, these basic resources. You know, it's like <laughs> the Natural Resources Defense Council, <laughs> international. <laughs> <laughs> the, the white blood you know? cells. White, of, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the biosphere. So, yeah. So I am hopeful I'm also scared, but I mean, I'm hopeful. The polar bear, I, I'm glad the polar bear is in <laughs> the show because that's the polar bear is the image to me of they're goners. There's, there's no way that the polar bear is going to survive another 10 generations. I mean, I no, don't know what their lifespan won't. is, but like. But I think what's more important for, for, human beings to recognize I actually want to make a t-shirt and maybe this t-shirt already exists somewhere that says we endangered endangered species on it because we're the endangered species actually it's a line in the in the piece i think it's one of the ghosts lines which are written so i don't mm -hmm. have them memorized <laughs> <laughs> but i think it says something like you are the that we're threatening ourselves 
I mean, we're yes, we we've destroyed. We we've actually we actually have caused the a human activity has caused the actual extinction of many species at this point, and some scientists call it. Um, you know, there have been I think six or five. There have been five or six massive extinctions within in the Earth's history that we know of, right. where you know the majority of life has gone extinct. And the dinosaur, when the dinosaurs went extinct, that was one of them. Um, but there have been like f- four or five others. And um, a lot of scientists talk about the era we're living in now as the, the sixth or seventh, whatever, the next yeah. you know, mass extinction that's happening. And yeah, the polar bears are one but of them. But it's such a paradox because we, even when we recognize that we are the problem, we, mm-hmm. we know that, there's, that we're smart enough that at least some of us, if not all of us, will come out the other side as as human beings. And uh and that's that's why the uh that's why the endangered species of animals and of plants are are heartbreaking because like, you know, it ain't their fault and Mm-mm. they they're not able to cope with it. Um the way that humans basically are going to be able to cope with it as as i see it i mean the we can and i i think people very cynically realize this Mm. is that you know if we keep warming up the planet losing coastline Mm -hmm. uh you know incurring other wrathful forces of mother nature Mm -hmm. uh, and extincting different species and everything. Like the same ingenuity that caused our industrial pollution to make this problem in the first place, that same ingenuity is going to be employed to like kind of work us out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the way, you know, if the NRDC is a, a white blood cell, like mm-hmm. the swine flu is probably another white blood cell. It's like, mm, yeah. you know, different plagues that could try and kill us off and just get us down to a oh, sustainable sure. population. Uh, it's like we're good at fighting those. Mm. We're, it's very paradoxical. Like we're very good at uh, preserving our own destructive impulses and so some of the characters you interview like uh like simon talks about how how nasty it's it's going to be for all the people in bangladesh and everything you know Mm -hmm. and some other character talks about how the the physicist the german physicist talks Mm -hmm. about how we're going to be fighting each other Mm -hmm. for food and water and dying Mm -hmm. and it's like but i think part of this human spirit either knows or believes that we're gonna like we're gonna do okay like uh there's no way for us to fathom a a scale of millions of years like other other species have have typically existed for millions of years Mm -hmm. and we haven't um and it's and it's hard to think of that kind of time scale, but I think about the polar bears dying out, and mm-hmm. the polar bears have probably been around for longer than humans have been. Mm-hmm. 
uh, maybe the same amount of time, who knows. And uh, that's what should be happening to us. <laughs> you know, if, yeah, right. if they're dying, we should also be dying. Yeah, if life were fair, we'd be... But we're, we're, we're better at it. We're winning the game, you know, and like... Yeah, I mean, this is this is the this is the thing I came up against in conceiving of um, this metaphor of you know I'm an alcoholic and drug addict in recovery, and and when I the more I learned about this issue, the more I started to recognize the similarities um, in addictive behavior between the society's relationship to fossil fuels and an addict's relationship to any drug especially in terms of, you know, fracking and um, the tar sands, like we're scr- like t- digging with our fingernails yeah, to get this stuff, yeah. you know, out of the ground, um, wasting incredible amounts of resources to, you know, to dredge it up out of the ground before we'll, we're willing to, when it's, d- when we know, we know it's causing, it's, it's destroying the environment our environment um but the the so i kept wondering because when with an alcoholic for myself as an alcoholic you know it took really dire consequences of that behavior for me to have any kind of willingness to change because i was so dependent on it um and so i kept thinking and that's in recovery that's called the bottom right you know um, and there's a song in the show, uh, called, you know, based on Woody Guthrie's This Land is, is Your Land. And, um, and there's a phrase in it that says the bottom is when the digging ends. In other words, you can choose when to stop right. doing a destruction. Which is behavior. a great visual <laughs> metaphor. You know, it, that's, that's a great line because... Yeah, because we're literally that is literally digging, <laughs> <laughs> digging <laughs> and also and you say drilling when the in, when the digging ends, you are actually you're, you are the at the bottom. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, it's a true it's, statement. It's where you are, but um, but usually it 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 takes you know things, um, like there's another phrase in that song, um, uh, so that sometimes the bottom is described as when when things get worse faster than you can lower your standards, um, you know things go horribly out of control faster than you can sort of say well it's okay like you're saying right now. Right now, we can kind of say like, yeah, okay, there's, you know, there's like once in a lifetime hurricanes twice in two years, but no, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like we'll recover. So things aren't, the impacts are happening already in the world, um, but they're not happening, they're not spiraling right now out of control so fast that we're forced to make a change. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so I kept thinking, like, "Wow, what's it gonna, what's it gonna take?" Because the other, the other tricky thing about climate change is that, you know, um, the greenhouse gases stay in the atmosphere for hundreds of years, longer than we're alive. Right, and every new measurement <laughs> seems to be like, you know, a readjustment upwards of how much we even thought oh, yeah. were there before. And so, so, um, so the, what I say in the piece at the end of the piece is the metaphor doesn't work because if you wait in the case of addiction of fossil fuels, um, 
if you wait till you hit bottom, so to speak, if you wait for things to get so bad, you're willing to do anything else, you know, um, it'll be too late because the, the effects will already be in motion. And there's also these, these tipping points, um, which I think is why that organization is called tipping point. Um, and it's like if a, it's like when somebody becomes diabetic, you know, um, they can't go back to having high blood sugar or, or pickle can't go back to being a cucumber. So there yeah. are these things where these kind of feedback loops happen in the cycle. And there are points at which it can tip over. And that even if you s at that point decided, okay, we're not going to burn any more fossil fuels, you know, the cycle, the effects might already be in motion. Like there's already, you know, there's all, there's actually already more CO2 in the atmosphere right now than most scientists think is safe. Already. Yeah. Quite a bit more. <laughs> Which is why Wallace Broker is talking about CO2 sequestration and that's being investigated, you know. But, um, but I also think you're right. I mean, the other thing that about being in the Arctic that was really palpable was how resilient life can be, you know. Um, You know, I mean, who would have thunk, you know, we'd be here. <laughs> right. Sitting right. across from one another, like wearing T-shirts and glasses and, you know. Yeah, no, it is amazing. It's, if it's you a think miracle. about, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. And it's a miracle beyond our comprehension, you know, I believe. So, um, so if, if only for that reason, uh, you know. I do have quite a bit of hope. And I also and I also think um I think things like Hurricane Sandy happening are are bringing this issue. They I mean things like that happening are making it hard to ignore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um it was interesting on the boat there was a woman who works for the World Health Organization and her whole job is to prepare people in third world countries for the effects of climate change that are already happening. And she gave a talk about, about her work on the boat. And um, one of the things she said is, it's kind of like you said, the these innocent creatures are being affected uh, horrifically by, by human behavior, but uh, there's also huge swaths of human populations that are being affected by Western industrialized nations. So the, the population's least responsible for pollution and climate change are the ones most affected, you know, um, at this point in time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult, it, it makes, it made me understand doing, you know, like intense research about this issue <laughs> over a period of two years. It made me understand why there's been so much denial because, it's scary and it can be easily overwhelming. And so, of course, the impulse is to, any excuse to not believe that there's a problem, people will snatch, you know? Um, but, I mean, the other, the other thing that I um, was thinking, and this is where the future, the girl from the future character sort of came out of this 
line of thinking is that, um, you know, in Western industrialized nations, there's people have sort of more and more and more um, stuff and sort of higher and higher standards of living. But the ratio um, of that style of living to happiness is a uh, there is no connection <laughs> well, or really I, there's I, a, like a reverse connection right yeah. i mean it seems like the but more, how do you measure happiness yeah, i mean how so do you measure somebody happiness? living in a garbage you know garbage dump in cairo is like you can't say that they're like ascetically happy <laughs> because they don't have anything right. i mean it's there's I, don't know, I, I, I agree that's yeah. there's there's no I have this and this makes me happier that's nobody <laughs> I mean nobody who's really examined the situation believes that right uh but it's uh yeah we are in a culture that uh sort of values getting stuff and being able to get stuff uh, because everybody is I mean there there's so many damn people and everybody's supposed to have a everybody needs a way to make a living and mm -hmm. making a living goes beyond um, you know putting a roof over your head and food on the table uh, there are so many things out there to enjoy and you want to be able to enjoy them. And some of them are ephemeral things like theater, but some of them are specific things like a flat screen TV. And it's <laughs> like, uh, so you want to be able to go out and get these things and the people are there providing these to you because they want their own money to go get other stuff. I mean, it's just like a big, it's a big cycle and I, maybe the problem is that it's just it's too large i mean it, it's just it's ballooned well there's definitely too many people there are so many people and if the world is if everybody needs a slice of the overpopulated. pie it's yeah that's wild and you could say that that's um i mean that's the german physicist you know point of view is that if a lot of people get wiped out by this issue, that um, is probably because it's it's kind of like the that the immune system thing, you know. Like if I was the Earth, <laughs> mm -hmm. let's say, or I was even the biosphere, you know, I'd probably want to shake off some of this. Oh, absolutely! Some of these people. You know, which I I hope nobody's gonna write me hate mail saying, <laughs> "What do you mean?" Yeah, well, you're that, not but... prescribing mass killings <laughs> no, or anything. I'm not. And nobody is, but it's like, uh, do you? It's it's a it's a fun hypothetical to go into once in a while. Is you know, would would I rather be dead uh, along with most of the other people in this world, mm. so that a tenth of the people oh boy. could survive. That's a good science, so, sort of science fiction plot line to consider, you know? Yeah. And 
Who right. will come forward and sacrifice him or herself? Yeah. I mean, what if what if that you know what if it came down to that that it was like I don't know. okay people, we just need then we'd really you be at all war. to jump off a cliff because <laughs> I mean you know who who really wants to do that I mean how how noble are you how much of a martyr do you want to be uh, or how much of a preservationist do you want to be I mean people go to war. Uh, for this reason. I mean, I read books that, that are set um, either during World War II or with characters who lived through the war or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, unlike some of today's wars, that's that's a war that a lot of people wanted to fight. Mm. And they enlisted to fight, to risk their lives, to protect what they say is their country, but what they really mean is the people they love and the mm-hmm. the way things are going about that they want yeah, to preserve. Yeah, and a way of life. I mean, it's like, or it's like the Civil War. You could think about that too, you know, of saying, um, we, you know, and may, maybe there will be a war. Maybe there will ultimately be a, a war between, um, you know, the the... <laughs> I don't know. That's the. I mean, I think probably what'll happen is it's just like this meteorologist who came and spoke at the public forum um, at the Walker uh, said ultimately, in terms of economics, it, it could be that economics is going to be the driver that's going to make the change happen to sustainable energy sources because. It's more economically viable in the long run, and that's why China is is developing sustainable energy mm-hmm. more than the United States. Um, how about the how about the one child policy in China? Oh, like what God, was right. like what was? Do you know much about it? Do you know why they went to that? And I don't. I mean, I can imagine why because to to try to they they said, oh, what can we do about overpopulation? They say, well, we have to make a law. But and then again, is is so is that you know is that a code of of ethics that like (laughs) people are ready to sign up for? No, No, they just kill all the girl babies. You know, if that if you make that rule, they do. So horrible. They do it a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but I guess I'm, I'm not talking so much about a war over resources in the case of World War II, but mm. like a, a war to preserve, um, like actually to preserve the lives of the people around you. Mm. Like we had been uh bombed, sure, and we thought there were be more attacks on the way and we really had to fight and that's the american perspective i mean the perspective of uh our european allies were like yes we are actually being invaded (laughs) we have to take up arms to defend ourselves um so if soldiers were at one point willing to sacrifice their lives in combat to do that i mean would there ever be soldiers, uh, you know, soldiers in quotes, volunteering for, uh, you know, euthanasia to, to like 
bring the world down to a you know to preserve their future generations or yeah yeah or to to a less extreme extent than euthanasia is something like a one child policy well, that yeah you could have it voluntary reverses the tide or you could have just an incentivizing yeah. for that you could say if you're willing to i mean that's what i think they should do because i don't want to have children <laughs> <laughs> so they should say to incentivize people to not have children it's like you get a bonus from the government for not having children that's what i think it should be. <laughs> right so right you get a bonus from the government for or having, having children Children, yeah, it's yeah. like Reverse ridiculous. The incentive. Yeah, you should be incentivized to to not have them. <laughs> but but the uh, I mean that works at cross purposes with the very idea that it's your family, your children, mm. your children's children that you are preserving this world for. Right, right. It's right. like, do I want to uh, just run out the clock on my own life and? never have kids and like have a questionable legacy impact on this world uh just so that uh well, i you think know, it's unfortunate Molly's that, that can... there's the I, there's the idea that if you you know you have to um procreate to have a legacy you know well right and and that's where i think um i mean uh artists i think more so than other people are concerned with legacy um just just not maybe more so but more actively on a more daily thing it's like okay am i creating something that's gonna be recorded and going to posterity or Mm -hmm. am i coming up with an idea that's going to uh filter through the population and you know yeah, you're sort of creating. Um, I mean, people say you give birth to. Yeah, you give birth an artwork. Give I mean, birth. that's the language about yeah, it. Sure. So, and it has a life, and it has a life beyond you, and um, you know, permeates the consciousness of other people, and and you know, it's yeah, it has ripples. It has ripples outward. Other people are very, con- you know, very convinced that their legacy is their children, and the way, mm. or or. Um, you know, the teaching of the next generation, not necessarily mm-hmm. the having of their own, but the right. education and the upbringing of the next generation and everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's what makes it interesting to uh, create work about climate change because it, it is going to be a snapshot of 2013. Yeah, that's true. Where how we think at. about it. It's a, you know, it's a Polaroid of that. Uh, so going forward, it'll be interesting for people to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you also, do you also, f- I mean, do you feel weight of that? That's sort of creating an artic- artistic legacy for yourself, something that's going to... Oh, um, I, I, I don't think about that so much, no. I mean, I, I before this comment world, I, I rarely considered the audience. Mm. <laughs> um, and I find it, because I find it crippling to consider the audience. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit of a struggle with this, with this piece. Because th- I had moments of thinking, oh, maybe I should 
I try to introduce, you know, suggestions of solutions or I should, I should, you know. Um, but I mean, as I was talking about earlier, I think there's, there's some sort of um, way in which I feel that I'm a servant to, um, to this creature, which is the show. And that, you know, it became more about the shuttling between this personal idiosyncratic perspective and this kind of wider perspective in space and time. And that became, you know, what I hope is what's useful about it. Um, and that I, I, I actually feel like the particularities of, of the economics and the policy question is, is where it can get... Um, that's where it becomes politicized. The issue becomes politicized, right? And and so I actually think there's value, and that's part of what's valuable about art in some ways is it's this other sphere. Um, you know, like there was a there was a climate scientist who came and and uh, moderated a post show discussion, and I said to him, "What do you think it's the future is going to look like?" And he said, "Well, I don't think we'll all be living in on." little tiny pockets of land like Noah after the flood. And that was one of the images in the, from the show. And so because, because I'm not um, restricted in the same way, like the scientific discourse is, is restricted by uh, the burden of proof, you know? And, and so, which is, which is beautiful and um, sacred, you know, it has its own sacred space and that, that's the best way for science to go forward. But I think it's really important to be able to investigate scientific issues in the artistic realm where you're not constricted by those same um, burdens. You know, that's the use of it. Is that, and so you can, it's like science fiction. You can let your imagination run a little bit wild. And I think that the, I think the running wild of the imagination, the possibility of the imagination, is really vital to bring to this issue because you have to you have to be able to imagine that there are these gases in the atmosphere you can't see them and you have to be able to imagine life before you your your yeah. lifetime and life after your lifetime and you have to be able to imagine things that might happen you know um so it really i think just to um to enliven that part of the mind is ultimately became you know, if I reflect in the moments that I would reflect on it, I thought that's a useful, that's a useful effect or that's a useful purpose um, for this piece. And uh, you say that it, it sort of leads you around <clears throat> when you're creating a piece. Mm -hmm. uh, and it that reminds me of the... Um, you know, the, some sculptors, uh, if they approach a, a piece of wood or a, a block of marble or something, it's like the sculpture is already inside mm -hmm. this yeah, block of marble idea, right? and I, I just need to find it. I need to chip away until it's, it's there. Uh, so, you know, now that you've done the show in, uh, you've performed the show in three different locations you're looking ahead probably to more mm -hmm. uh what has it been teaching you uh revealing to you like 
two years into the process and you know when you did in Minneapolis recently was there something that the show taught you that you hadn't uh, seen before Hmm. Not necessarily. I think that the exciting thing for me about performing the show at the Walker was that we had had this public policy night um, a week before the show's there. And so that event drew an audience that wouldn't normally come to the theater. You know, it drew these kind of environmental activist audience and... Um, some people who actually work in efforts to change policy around climate change. And so those people then came to the show. Um, and so for me, it was just really nice to have an audience of people that that wasn't necessarily the normal theater-going audience. And that's my real hope for this show, is that it can it can start to go to places where an audience will see it that's not necessarily a theater-going audience. Because, I mean, the theater-going audience is its a pretty, um, you know, particular and small and kind of privileged uh, segment of the population, you know? And I think, I mean, what I want to do now is make something... Um, for little children, like for to help them try to understand what's happening, because it's going to affect the younger you are, the more it's going to affect you, you know. And that was one thing that kept coming into my mind as I was making this piece too over the last couple of years. Is I kept thinking like, if I was going to set, if I was really going to set out to make something in terms of effectiveness, you know, <laughs> I think I would make a children's show. Mm. Um, so this became, um, you know, this took on its own momentum in a, in a different direction, um, this show. Well, there you go. This show also took a different direction. This episode of the podcast took a different direction. That whole conversation sort of spun off in ways that I did not picture it uh, spinning off. So let's end with another song of Cindy's and the song is called Paradise and it is from two shows ago uh, she mentioned I think in the interview her trilogy of shows that were uh, about herself about her uh, own life as an addict and uh, somebody who is dealing with personal issues such as alcoholism uh, but she always did a good job in those shows of filtering her own problems through some sort of interesting lens. And the song I'm going to play, I believe, was sung by a person, kind of creature, who was in outer space for most of the show and was looking back at the Earth from, a, um, from I think, far in the future. I might have that wrong. But uh, certainly you see in this song the some of the same themes that are coming up about uh, our abuse of our globe, our biosphere, our environment. Um, so it might be a fitting uh, little ribbon to tie around the episode. There's probably going to be a few more episodes like this as I have kind of run out of uh, Escape from Society material for the moment, but I will be getting back to 
a couple more of those songs and some more song poem related things and other fun music stuff in the future. So uh, thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. Thank you.